Good morning. Um, as the title says, let's talk. Um, over the next uh, several weeks, I plan to use my message time to share a bit about prayer. Uh, it's my hope that together uh, we might turn up the intensity uh, and or clarity uh, of our focus on this vital aspect of our spiritual lives. Um, unfortunately, uh, for many sincere Christ followers, uh, perhaps even for some of you, this topic can be a source of guilt, it can be a source of confusion, it can be a source of frustration, it can be a source of intimidation. It is my hope uh, that over the next few weeks, we can cut through some of that and in the process, empower many of us to move to new levels not in our activity of prayer, but new levels with regard to our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Because when it comes down to it, it's imperative that we grasp that prayer is more about relationship than it is about anything else. It is not a shopping list. Uh, it is a relationship. And it's, it's important that we grasp that. Today my focus is going to be on, as my title says, uh, addressing some of the barriers that we must overcome to move forward as people of prayer. And the first barrier uh, that we're going to look at is we just don't get it. There is always spiritual opposition to prayer. Now, that's based upon my interpretation of Scripture or the interpretation of Scripture of the Wesleyan Church that just as God is a spiritual power for good, there is a power that is driven and motivated by the pursuit of evil. And so there is an adversary or spiritual opposition. And if prayer is one of the ways in which we draw closer and closer and closer to God, then it makes sense that our spiritual adversary just plain doesn't want that to happen. Uh, Paul, when he's writing about the armor of God, he says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So again, the first barrier we have to break through is to grasp the reality that there will always be spiritual opposition. And one of the ways our adversary works against our pursuit of prayer is by inviting us, enticing us, encouraging us to believe lies about the very process of prayer. And some of the lies that we believe about prayer include, well, let's see, the lies we believe, some of the lies we believe, many of us at times in our spiritual journey have believed the lie that we don't know how to pray. And can I just say, I don't mean to be overly simplistic, but ask yourself a question. Can I speak? Can I write? Can I read? Can I sing? Can I draw? Can I dance? Can I think? If you answered yes to any of those questions, you can pray. It's that simple, friends. Don't believe the lie that you don't know how to pray. Because it is just that. 
which lays us to the next lie. And, that, and that's, I don't know what to say. That could also be interpreted, I'm afraid I might say something embarrassing. I see some heads nodding. All right, I don't, I don't know what to say. Some of you know my story. I have gone to church my entire life. For the past 40 plus years, I've walked in a real personal life-changing love relationship with God and taken the pursuit of my faith fairly seriously. So over those 60 plus years, I've been in environments where a lot of people have prayed. Now, I'm not saying this doesn't happen. I'm talking about my experience. In my experience over those 60 plus years, I have never been in any kind of environment where someone is praying and had the voice of God enter in and say, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard anybody say. Now, maybe that's happened to you. Maybe somebody you know has suggested you said something really stupid. I've never heard God break in. Now, I believe it could happen. I'm just saying it's never happened in my limited experience. So I think that is a lie that that we tend to believe. So, so let me just put some of this to rest. Wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, maybe just barely turning back the page to peak a little bit, or maybe you've been at it a long time. The simple truth is we all have to learn sometime. Some of us, it may come more naturally than others, just like some of us are more naturally talkative than others. For me, my growth in the process of prayer came when I began to sense that God was calling me into ministry. Now, I that was, you know, 20 years old, 21 years old. And when we began to when I began to say people that I was thinking of going into the ministry, I didn't know it. But it was like that put a sign over me that I was now the designated prayer prayer whenever I was anywhere. Family functions? Oh, Steve, he's going into ministry. You pray. I never prayed. I never talked out loud before that, let alone pray out loud. Church functions? Oh, Steve will pray. Youth group functions? Oh, Steve will pray. Um, kind of like the sink or swim thing. I was in the deep end, and I did a wicked, nasty dog paddle, all right? <laughs> we all have to learn sometimes. Simple things, friends. This is common sense stuff. But to counter the lie that we don't know what to say, start in a safe environment. Like 9.15 Sunday mornings, just saying. Um, Just share your heart. That's all God wants from you. He doesn't want you to pray like anybody else. He just wants to hear your heart. And nobody can pray your heart for you but you. Get used to hearing your voice. Dear God, thanks. Oops, I'm done. You know what? you got to start somewhere. Learn from others rather than be intimidated by others. But can I just say this? Please don't pray like I do because it's me. Just, but listen to others. Everybody prays differently because everybody's different.
Look in the Bible. Sometimes it's just good to just read the Bible back and read their prayers. I like other people's prayers. And if you read the Bible at all, you get what I'm talking about, about share your heart. Again, some of you have read in the Psalms and others of you haven't. And and many times the Psalms are kind of just recordings of somebody's prayer. And you know what? Sometimes it's just real personal. If you read some of David's stuff, he's saying, Lord, this just isn't fair. How come the bad people get away with everything and the good people suffer? It's just not fair. You know what? God, Scripture doesn't record that God reached out and slapped David upside the head. And said, Who are you to talk to me that way? It's okay. So, so to counter the lie that you don't know what to say, just look in Scripture, look around, listen, and just start somewhere. We'll come back to that in a minute. The third lie is I don't have time. I know this hurts. All right. But really? Really? Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. A little interactive moment. As you look at that, what jumps out to you? What jumps out? Say it out loud. What's it? Dark? I don't like the dark. You know what? I don't want to leave my house before it gets daylight. I don't want to leave my house after it gets dark. So this time of year, I'm pretty much home all the time. All right. So dark. What else? He took action. All right. What else? Early? He went off by himself. He was intentional. He scheduled a time. He prayed. He did something. You know know what the most important part? Not the most important. You know what jumps out to me? Who are we talking about here? Jesus. Friends. The Son of God thought it was important enough that he got up early and prayed. Shouldn't he get a pass? I mean, he and God are like this or like this. But Jesus, friends, think about it. I know you're busy. Some of you are just, you embarrass me because you make me look really lazy. All right, you're busy. But think about this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had three years to train 12 men to change the world for all of eternity. You think you've got pressure? Dude, you got three years to save the world. And he said, this is so important, and I'm so inadequate. The Son of God. I'm going to get up early, go off by myself, and pray. Friends, I I get it. But I have to admit that it's a lie. Can we just be honest with ourselves? You don't have to say anything to anybody else. But we make time 
for the things we choose to make time for. It's painful. I believe me, I use I use the justification, the rationale, the explanation, the excuse that I'm busy all the time. We make time for what we make time for. It's a choice. The next barrier, we just don't get it. If God is truly our only hope, then prayer becomes a necessity, not an option. For many, not for all, but for many of us, the priority that we place upon prayer is actually an indicator of the extent to which we are self-reliant rather than God-dependent. Be honest. Don't raise your hand because this would be awkward. But how many of us are guilty of embracing the misguided notion that we can handle most of our problems on our own and we only need God for the big stuff? I could not begin to tell you how many times in my life I try and 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 then it's like, oh, maybe I should pray about this. Now that's just me. But many of us try everything else before admitting that God is our only hope. James chapter 4 verse 2 puts it this way. You desire but you but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Could it really be that simple? The truth is, apart from God, we have no hope. And we have nothing to offer others. In Luke chapter 11, in the first few verses, Jesus is actually teaching about prayer. And then he tells his listeners a story. And he said, there was this dude, and he got company. Company showed up at his door late at night. And it was somebody he knew, and he welcomed them in. And some of you have been here. He welcomed them in and realized, I don't have anything to serve them, and they've been traveling, and they're hungry. So what did he do? He went to his neighbor. And he banged on the door and woke his neighbor up. And he said, I've got company. I want to feed them. I've got nothing. Can I borrow something from you? Now, Donna's here. Uh, she's my neighbor, for those of you who don't know. Like, you remember what I said about dark? All right. Not only do I not want to leave, but I don't care to have anybody show up on my door after dark. It might be scary for you if you do, because we might both have a surprise. All right. But this guy said, no, no, serious, I'm sorry I woke you, but I, I really need something. And eventually the guy kind of gave in and said, fine, take some bread and, and leave me alone. But what I want to get is verse 6 of that story. What he said, he said, a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food. Or some translations say, I have nothing to offer him. I have nothing to offer him. Acts chapter 3, verse 6. Peter and John are walking along, and Peter and John were in basically full-time ministry at this point, which means they probably didn't have two nickels to rub together, all right? So they're walking along, and there's this guy. He's, he's, he's crippled, and he's laying by the street, and the only way he survives is by begging. And Peter and John walk by, and he says, you know, jingles his cup, and he says, you know, can you guys help me? And Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. 
We just don't get it. If God is truly our only hope, then prayer becomes a necessity, not an option. Friends, just consider for a moment the situations you face, probably very regular, where truth be told, you have nothing of consequence to offer. This is going to be real and personal for some of you. Lord, my neighbor's teenage son just died in an auto accident. And I've got nothing to put before him. I I can't fix that for them. Lord, my friend is dying of cancer. And and I've got nothing. I, I, I can't fix that for them. Lord, the woman I work with, her home's breaking up. And I've got nothing to set before her. Friends, truth be told, none of us are fully equipped to face the challenges of this life, let alone to help others face them. God is truly our only hope, and that reality should drive us to prayer. Lord, this neighbor, this friend, this co-worker I, I, I can't fix them I, I don't even know what to do to help them but I believe that you do you don't have to have practice words to say Lord help my friend my heart breaks for them barrier number three we just don't get it God loves us deeply and longs for consistent connection with us we tend to embrace a false notion that God is like a reluctant neighbor, the one we got to rouse out of bed and say, please, 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 please. He's not a reluctant neighbor who's unwilling to give us what we ask. The false impression that we embrace that reduces our motivation, our inclination, and our confidence when we go to him in prayer. The reality that should undergird our prayer life is that if God loved us enough to send his precious son to the cross in our place, then we should feel free to go to him about anything, to go to him for anything, to go to him anytime, any place. Sorry about this. Friends, remember what I said when I started? It's about relationship. God loves you so much that he just wants to hear your voice. He wants to hold your hand. He wants to share your heart and share his heart. Martin Luther, the man who was at the point of the spear with the Protestant movement. said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctances, but rather laying hold of his willingness. We don't pray to overcome God's reluctance. We pray to embrace his willingness. He wants a relationship with each and every one of us that can only be fully developed 
by our intentional, interactive, ongoing dialogue. Us talking, us listening. Number four, we just don't get it. Prayer really matters. This is not just church talk. Friends, think about this for just a moment in the real world, all right? We appreciate the reality that in this world, knowledge matters. So we spend hours and hours and hours and hours learning, going to classes, reading, studying, Googling, because knowledge matters. We appreciate the reality that in this world, money matters. So we spend hours and hours and hours and hours working, saving, planning, investing. We say within the church circles, we appreciate the importance of prayer. But how much do we actually pray? As difficult as it is for us to comprehend, the most important and the most loving thing we can do for someone, including ourselves, is to sincerely, consistently, intentionally pray for them. What I want to do is have you considered just a few moments, I, I really wrestled with whether or not to take the time to do this, and as you can tell, I decided to. In church history, there are countless examples of how the world has been changed through battles fought on the knees of one, two, or three humble prayers. And as you listen to these examples, I want you to ask yourself, why not me? All right? In your mind, why not me? In 1830, a long time ago, in Rochester, New York, a man named Abel Clary. Any of you heard of Abel before? Abel Clary, not Abel in the Bible. Abel Clary? No, me neither. Abel Clary committed to prayer for his preacher. He would pray for at least an hour before the preacher started, and he would pray until well after the preacher had left the building. He never once appeared in public or on the platform. He committed himself wholly to prayer. The preacher was a man named Charles Finney. And in one year, while Abel Clary prayed, 1,000 people of Rochester's 10,000 population came to receive Christ under Finney's pulpit ministry. A tenth of the city in one year came to Jesus Christ while Abel Clary prayed somewhere in a back room. Was Charles Finney a good preacher? Oh, yeah, he was a good preacher. But friends, population of Albion, Homer combined, 10, 15,000, 1,000 to 1,500 people in one year. Wrap your head around. Why not me? In 1872, a bedridden girl in London, way over there in England, all right, a bedridden girl in London named Marie L. Adlard 
read a newspaper clipping about a YMCA working who, worker who was making a difference for Christ in the streets of Chicago. She's bedridden in London. She reads an article about somebody working ministry in Chicago. As she lay there in her bed, she began to pray that God would bring this man to preach in her church in London. Lord, the dude's got something. Send him over here to our church. England! Would you pray for God to send somebody from Marshall to Albion? Send him from England! Eventually, D.L. Moody did go to London. And he did go to her church. And in 10 days, 400 new converts came into that church. Why not me? For a number of years, Jonathan Goforth, what a name for a missionary, Goforth. I mean, (laughs) really? Only God could come up with this. For a number of years, Jonathan Goforth was a missionary in Manchuria. In 1909, there was a powerful move of the Holy Spirit, and revival swept through the region. Later that year, Goforth was in London visiting friends and supporters. So he's in Manchuria, there's revival, revival appears to subside, and he, <coughs> he goes back to touch, make reconnect with his support base. He was taken to meet with an invalid lady who was part of one of his supporting churches. As he spoke with a specific time that the revival was released, she grew quiet and asked him to look at her prayer notebook. Note, note there, subtly, prayer notebook, she kept track. All right, just, just saying. She had recorded three specific dates that she felt a special power come upon her to pray for the ministry in Manchuria. Goforth confirmed that those were the very days he had witnessed the greatest outpouring of God's power in that revival. London, Manchuria, invalid, just praying. God's Spirit stirred her. She responded. I, I, I can't explain it. Wouldn't try. In 1934, we're getting a little more current, but we're going to stop after this one. In 1934 in Charlotte, North Carolina, revivalist Mordecai Ham. Anybody ever heard of Mordecai? Really? What rock are you living under? All right, anyway. Um, in 1934, Charlotte, North Carolina, revivalist Mordecai Ham was coming for a series of meetings. In other words, we got some fancy preacher coming. All right? In preparation, several area businessmen gathered on a friend's farm and spent the day praying for God to use those meetings to touch their city, state, and country. So in other words, we're having special meetings. We're, we're having some fancy guy come in. Let's pray. So they get together on somebody's farm, and they spend a day just just praying for God to use these meetings. During these meetings, many people in Charlotte were deeply moved in response to their prayers. But the results touched even closer to home because the farmer who hosted the prayer meeting had a young son who came to Christ during the revival meetings. So in other words, he just opens up his, his farm for a prayer meeting, and his son ends up getting saved. In response to the prayers of those men, young Billy Graham grew up to be used by God to touch their city, state, country, and much of the entire world. A few businessmen praying on some farm, farm, I don't know if they were in the barn, if they were in the field, who knows. 
Why not me? Some of you are familiar with the story in Mark chapter 9. A father has a son who's demon-possessed. And he is desperate for his son to be set free. And he goes to Jesus, and parents, you get it. He's desperate. And he, and he says, Jesus, my son, this demon throws him on the ground. It, it threatens his life. It's just miserable. And, and it's funny because we don't often get a glimpse sometimes of, of Jesus have an attitude. All right. But, but the guy says to Jesus, he said, if you can do anything, would you, would you please do something for my son? And, and Jesus, I mean, I picture him stepping back. And Jesus says, if I can? Really? If I can? And the father says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Friends, I would like to think that I believe enough to pray for revival and see it happen. But I have to say, Lord, I do believe, but but help my unbelief. I do believe, but help my unbelief. So when I say, why not me? I get it. So pray. Lord, I, I do believe, but kind of help me with my unbelief, okay? The last barrier. We just don't get it. Prayer is not bound by our agenda or expectations for immediate gratification. In other words, we tend to give up far too quickly and far too easily. Our commitment to prayer is hindered when we don't get the answer we want in the time frame we want it. And our motivation to persevere dwindles. Friends, I I get it. I live in the same world you live in. In our age of 5G, high-speed everything. Remember, this is a guy who starts his timer when he pulls into the drive-thru at McDonald's to see how long it's going to take to get my food. So when I call to complain, I can tell him exactly how many minutes and seconds it took. I get it. I'm the guy when the Wi-Fi here is taking too long, I run right to the office and reboot it because that might buy me a couple extra seconds. I get it. But don't make, don't, don't criticize me because you know, all right? I remember Dan telling one time about if the line that drive through is too long, he r- races in to see if he can beat it by going into the counter. What's that? <laughs> in our age of 5G, high-speed everything, our expectation for immediate gratification, friends, threatens our ability to wait upon God, and it threatens our capacity to trust in God. If we don't have an answer in five minutes, five days, or five weeks, we tend to give up. We just don't get it. Prayer is not bound by our agenda or expectations for immediate gratification. God's ways are not our ways. 
They never have been. They never will be. And to be honest with you, we don't want them to be in spite of what we may think. God's time is not our time. Never has been, never will be. If you've read books on prayer, which I suspect some of you have, you may have come across the name of a man named George Mueller. In the previous century, he was the founder of the New Orphan Houses in England. And he was and is famous. He's long since gone. But he was famous as a man of prayer. And some of you know enough about my idiosyncrasies that you'll grasp why this was so significant to me. One of the many stories about George Mueller is he was traveling on business for his orphanages, and he was actually going out to raise funds. Um, And he had to travel by train. The problem was he didn't have money for a train ticket. Now, my somewhat controlling nature would have been to call everybody I knew and try to scrape up enough money to buy a train ticket, which that that's noble. His approach was to go to the train station and get in line to buy a ticket. It's a great story. By the time, you know, in me, friends, my anxiety level would have been off the chart for every person. She knows. She lives with me. Every person in line ahead of me that got their ticket and went, my heart rate would be going up. I would, my, I would be short of breath. George Mueller stands there in line. And that's a great story. I won't ruin the story for you because you may track it down on the, on the interweb. Um, but eventually he had the money before he got to the window. That's, that's George Mueller. I share that because I'm sharing a quote from him. He said, the great point is to never give up until the answer comes. He said this, I've been praying every day for 52 years for two men, sons of a friend of my youth. So in other words, we were buddies when we were kids. Now his kids are adults. And he's prayed for them, children of a friend, for 52 years. George Mueller says, they're not converted yet. But they will be. The great fault of the children of God is that they do not continue in prayer. They do not go on praying. They do not persevere. If they desire anything for God's glory, they should pray until they get it. Now, friends, understand. I just read this this week. Good stuff. God is not obligated to keep promises he didn't make. All right. But he will keep promises that he does make. So he's prayed for them. At the time he's writing this, he prayed for them for 52 years. They're not there yet, but they're going to be. The rest of the story. One of those men came to Christ at Mueller's funeral. 
The other one eventually did years later. We're talking at least 55 years. Friends, prayer's not bound by our agenda or expectations for immediate gratification. We just got to stay at it. Breaking down the barriers. We already seen this slide. In church history, there are countless examples. We only looked at a few. Just one, two, or three just unknown people who prayed. Why not me? First barrier, why not press past, past the opposition and start, stop believing the lies? Every great prayer started somewhere, somehow, sometime. Why not now? Barrier number two, embrace prayer as a necessity and stop treating it like an option. Just start where you're at and stay at it. Barrier number three, respond to and immerse yourself regularly in the depth of his love as you just talk to him. Number four, embrace the truth that prayer really matters. Embrace the truth that your prayer really matters. Why not me? You probably won't know it, but wouldn't it be awesome if 60 years from now somebody writes a book about you or mentions you in their book about how some praying man or woman in a tiny little church in a tiny little town of Albion prayed and prayed and prayed and God did something miraculous? Why not me? the last barrier why not start praying for God's will God's way in God's time and settle in for the long haul pray with me Father it's a lot to think about And I pray that you'd help each person process it in their own way. But I just say, help us, Father, to start where we're at. Just start where we're at. And start talking to you. Nothing fancy, nothing flowery. Just heart to heart. Help us start where we're at. And help us to keep moving forward to where you want us to be. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Great.